Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for Hosea 4 and the dramatically different text that it is from Hosea 3. And we pray that in the midst of the... The courtroom drama that, that as charges are laid down by God uh, to various groups, Lord, that we can find um, direction and we can find hope and we can find purpose and that we are both challenged and encouraged. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I wanted to give you a historical backdrop for just one second of what's going on here. Um, this next big section of Hosea, so chapter four to chapter six. It, uh, it, he's going to be talking to various audiences. Uh, we don't really know the date, but we have some war stuff going on here. And so this is actually a crazy time in Israel's history. Um, there was a war called the Syro-Ephraimite War. And in this war, the nation of Syria and Ephraim, or Israel, the Northern Ten, the Hosea's audience, they will attack Judah. So think about this. Israel is going to go down south, and they're going to attack Judah. The problem is, Judah's a big boy. So Israel has to, to, to ally with someone else. And this is the ally with Syria, the nation of Syria. And they attack Judah to try to force it to join a coalition of nations opposing Assyria. So you have Syria and Assyria. And Assyria, they were the biggest dudes on the block at the time. And so we have uh, King Ahaz, the king of Judah, refused to join the coalition. And so most of Judah actually was defeated. Foolishly refusing to trust God for deliverance, Ahaz called on the Assyrian king to rescue him. When that Assyrian king came, the Assyrians defeated everybody and the forces of Syria, as well as the armies of Israel. So these events may just explain Hosea's reference to violence and bloodshed in verse 2 tonight. Okay, this is what's going on at the time. A horrible war, division between Israel and Judah. It'd be kind of like if in the Civil War, if the North allied with Canada to attack the South, and the South, you know, picked up Mexico to join the fight. It's like everybody's getting an alliance by then. And they're going against each other. So Israel wanting to attack Judah, but bringing in foreign nations to help them out. Just crazy. It's just, that's what's going on in the background here. And it's just, it's nuts. It's, it's just imagine that kind of thing. So we're going to see at the end of our text tonight, God's going to break the script and speak to Judah. And it's going to give a warning to Judah. Like, hey, Judah, hold on here. So if you're, if you're looking at that point, you're going, well, that's random. God's speaking to Israel, and all of a sudden, God's just going to randomly speak to Judah? Well, we got chaos going on out there with Israel fighting Judah, and, and yeah, so that's what's going on. So this is just not just a random text. These texts are always full of historical backdrop and backgrounds, just like we enjoyed in the Minor Prophets with Nahum and Habakkuk and Jonah, and we looked at all these, these geopolitical forces going on at the time, and it brings it alive in technicolor. So with that said, we have tonight a charge against the nation, a charge against the priest, and a charge against the people. Again, think of this like a grand jury, where indictments are coming down. 
And then once the indictments happen, you plead guilty or not guilty to those indictments. And then you go to court, you know, kind of thing. But you got to have the indictments first. And you can tell I've read my John Grisham. The grand juries are very important. Okay. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. So Hosea is talking to Israel. Ephraim, he's talking to the north. Okay. Who he's been talking to this whole time. That's where Hosea is situated at. That's where he, so hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. Because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in this land. Ouch. This is not going to be fun. God has a charge to bring against you. Dang. Here it is. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed because of this the land dries up and all who live in who all who live in it waste away the beasts of the field the birds of the sky the fish in the sea they're all swept away yuck so a charge against the nation so what god doesn't see also what god does in fact see and the consequences that will be felt. So what does God not see? Um, he doesn't see faithfulness. Faithfulness is something that is firm and reliable and honest and integrity. He's not seeing any of that stuff. God doesn't see that with Israel. Does God see faithfulness with you? Firm, reliable, honest? Does that describe your relationship with God? Well, gosh, Joel, you're taking that to us really quick. Fair enough. But just remember, Israel thought they were God's people. And they thought, you know what, whatever. God's our God. And we're his people. And that's the undercurrent of everything in Hosea. Where Hosea literally had to name his children, not my people. To wake Israel up. You see, you just want to get away with everything because you're my people. I'm literally calling this child, not my people. To wake you the heck up. So it's a fair question to toss our way. Are you that way with God? God saw no love, and there's a compassion of love. It's just the idea that God didn't see love in the land. This is not like, you know, was it John Lennon? All you need is love. No, this is not that. This, is, this goes back to the basic commandments. Love of God and love of neighbor. He's not even seeing that. Wow. How's your attitude with God? Do you show the attitude of love? Do you love the Lord your God? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? God saw that they did not know him. Ouch. You know, there's the basic intellectual acknowledgement of God. And there's actually knowing God. Any fool can acknowledge God. Oh, yeah, there you are, God. Yes, sir, whatever. But then you got like in Matthew 7, Jesus saying, I never knew you. Be gone. God doesn't see that they know him. Instead, God just sees a nation of lawbreakers. What does God see? Um, yeah, if you're in a relationship with God, you're going to follow his word, the Bible. And um, God charges Israel with breaking his law. Um, look at what they're doing in verse 2 here. There's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. They break all bounds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. It's like, which Ten Commandments are you not breaking, Israel? I mean, I'm not sitting here as your judge, but you're claiming to be God's people. If you're claiming to be in a marriage with God, don't break your marriage document. 
Hello. That's the whole point. That's what sets you apart from literally every other nation. You have a covenant relationship with God. And this is that covenant. So, wow. So what God doesn't see, what God does in fact see, the consequences will be felt. Um, the land dries up. All who live in it waste away. I don't know if this is because the next thing in, in history is going to be the Assyrians are going to come through and sweep them all away. And they're just going to be done. And they're going to, you know, interbreed with a few of them or just take them off as slaves or exiles. They're just going to be kill them. They're done. The upper 10 tribes, crispy critters. So I don't know if that's that. If that's like God calling a shot, I don't know. It, 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 the, the commentators kind of split on that. But what we do know is consequences are going to come and they're going to be such that they are felt. You know, in Romans, when it says creation is groaning, I'm seeing that here. Creation is going to be responding and they're going to feel the effects of sin. Kind of like in Genesis 3 and 4 where, the, where Adam and Eve sin and all of a sudden thorns start growing. Creations felt that, didn't they? The crops had to now compete with thorny things and weeds. Um, yeah. The terrifying, in blueprint, the terrifying notion of the God who pays attention. Let that sink in for one second. What a terrifying thing. The terrifying notion of the God who pays attention. Not just the God who sees, you could be seeing me right now and just not listening, and that's your business. I honestly don't know why you would come to this Zoom and do that, but that, that's your business. God could just be seeing in a random deistic way. Oh, yeah, you're out there. God, that's the Bette Midler song. God is just watching us from a distance. He doesn't really care. He's just there. And that song is hogwash, by the way. It's not from a distance, as in God's just giving us the Heisman pose 24-7 and not caring one bit. No, God's paying attention, and that's terrifying. That's terrifying if you're somebody who's actively going against God. God sees. God sees what you should be doing, but you're not. God sees what you're doing, and you shouldn't be doing. And if you're a hider, you can't hide. If you're a hypocrite, you're toast. You have no hope on your own because God pays attention. That's a terrifying thing. Now, if you're in a victim, if, if you, you are being victimized by somebody and being abused by somebody and that you're, you're suffering silently and nobody pays attention, we know that God pays attention. There's that too, but we're not talking about that. I'm sure there's some plenty of victims in this text here these, because the nation is horrible. They're lying and murdering and stealing and adultering. All the, yeah, there's some, there's some people who aren't mentioned here that are going through a tough time and God sees them too. But this is an indictment. They're not getting indicted. They're going to feel some justice, we hope, because God pays attention. And with respect to one of my favorite childhood bands, DC Talk, love is a verb. Everybody who's in a relationship knows this. When you're a little teeny bopper and you're kind of like you're starting to be in love with being in love and you're kind of writing your first name with, with the boy's last name kind of thing, or you're dreaming about, you know, who's going to take your last name, that kind of stuff. And love is just kind of like a noun. It's just kind of like, oh, that's sweet. But when you're in a relationship, you know love isn't a stinking noun. Love is a verb. Love takes action. Love takes consistency. Love is an everyday thing. Okay, grammarians, love is a noun, I know, but, but love is a verb. 
you love people. You practically love, and they're not doing it. They're, they're loving themselves by doing what they want to do. Whatever, they're like the book of Judges. They're doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And God's not having it. God's just dropping bombs. You're done. We're not having this. This is not the way it's going to be. So it's a charge against the nation. Nick texted in because God, I got to check the chat here real quick. Because God sees it all, because God knows it all, there is no adequate defense against him if he is calling you out. Because he's not coming after you based on circumstantial evidence. He has firsthand knowledge of our sins. Yeah, that's also terrifying. Um, and that goes back to the Ten Commandments. What's the one Ten Commandment you couldn't prove? You couldn't prove the covet one, number 10. Good luck proving that in the court of law. You're coveting in your heart. Prove it. You can't. The only way you can is if you've broken another commandment. And I've, I've talked about that before. How do you prove you've coveted your neighbor's car? Because you stole his car. Thou shalt not steal. You broke that commandment. Or you committed adultery. You coveted his wife or his husband, her husband or whatnot. It's like you had to have broken another commandment. Otherwise, it's in the heart. So Jesus shows up in the Gospels and he knows people's hearts. All of a sudden, all bets are off. He knows what's going on. And so God has firsthand knowledge because God knows your heart. God created your heart. He certainly knows what's going on inside of it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Daniel, God knows that that God knows that frivolous thing that you constantly chase will ultimately cause you to feel empty. The terrifying notion of the God who pays attention and love is a verb. Yeah. I mean, we can stop right there. I mean, that's it. That's all we need to know right there. We cannot live lives that hide from God. We need to be constantly repenting. I know that because John the Baptist said that. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You only produce fruit by constantly being in that pot and growing or on the vine and growing. We have pots all over our kitchen right now. Jennifer's growing things. But it's like she's got like, you know, plants everywhere. And it's like you have to constantly address those pots and you have water and all that kind of stuff, sunlight to produce fruit. Repentance is to be kept. So that's a charge against the nation. Four to nine, a charge against the priests. Oh, this hurts as a pastor, but it's going to hurt you too, because you're, you're probably doing this as well. But let no one bring a charge. Let no one accuse another. And that's like a, a, a sinister little thing there, because the priests weren't, weren't just priests. They were judges. They were the people you went to if you had a charge against somebody. Well, you stole my cow. Well, uh, what witnesses do you have? Well, I have these two witnesses here. Well, let's go before the priest. And the priest was sent as a judge. And so this is the, this is, you know, after, you know, the time of the judges here. So there's like, the, it's like, this, we have kings. The king will sit in there, but the priest will step in. And your local priest would have stepped in. So let no one bring a charge. Let no one accuse another. For your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. Ouch. You stumble day and night. And the prophets stumble with you. Oh, he brings in the prophets here too. Now, Hosea, you're a prophet. There had to have been other prophets, weren't there? Because Hosea's not like that. He's one of God's guys. He's doing what's right. But there's other ones out there. There's always a prophet. There's always a prophetic thing. There's always something out there that is trying to claim to be God or claim to this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to say this. And anytime that kind of thing goes against what God has already said or has given you additional information of what God has already said in the Bible, danger will rob us in danger. We don't go there. We got to be careful with that. The prophets stumble with you. Ouch. 
So just because someone claims to be a prophet doesn't mean they're right. So I will destroy your mother. Ouch. Who's he talking to? Is this Gomer again? No, he's talking to the people. Who's their mother? Well, think of it like Mother Russia, you know, in the movies. This is the Mother Israel here, the nation itself. My people are, are destroyed by, from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Ouch. Seriously, priests? That's like your thing. Knowledge. The word of the Lord, preaching it, teaching it. You've rejected that? I mean, really? You've ignored the law of your God. I will ignore your children. That was huge, by the way, because the child of a priest, sons and daughters could eat certain things in the temple. Even daughters. I believe they could eat the bread. Or there was something about the daughters could eat too. But the sons of the priests, they were the only ones that could ever become priests. You had to be the son of a priest. So you had to trace your lineage up to Aaron. Only the sons of Aaron could be, be priests. That's it. They're also Levites, but only the sons. So, so the priest having sons is a massive thing. Here's a God saying, I'm, I'm going to forget your children. I'm going to ignore them. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. Ouch. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. And that sounds like Romans 1. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped the created things instead of the creator. Wow. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. Now, this is a pun, of course, because how do the priests eat? Every time you brought a sacrifice, the priests got some, didn't they? Now, they couldn't, they couldn't feed from a sin offering. If you brought a sin offering, no one was allowed to eat it. It was on the altar. That's it. Because nobody's going to profit. No one's going to have a full tummy because of someone else's sin. Except right here in Hosea stinking four. They're feeding on the sins of my people. They're eating things they shouldn't be eating. Oh, my goodness. Wow. They relish their wickedness. And it will be like people like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Boy, that's terrifying. God repaying you for your deeds? Yowza. Um, I beat you to Romans 1, Mick. Yeah, sorry about that. Romans is like your thing. Sorry. Um, yeah, it, this is a good illustration of how the sacred can be desecrated. Yeah, this is when you mix the sacred with the profane. Um, that profane hurts. Um, yeah, a charge against the priest. Their priestly responsibilities, what was their deal? Um, I've got a note here, I think. The priests were in charge of representing man before God. They administer sacrifices. They taught God's word to the people. If the priests didn't do their job faithfully, the people's relationship with God would suffer, and they wouldn't know what the scripture said. They also were the judges, and people came to them to decide lawsuits. You want your judges to be impartial, and God describes the people as someone who would actually bring charges against a priest. We're supposed to be holy. The priests weren't giving knowledge to the, of God to the people. They're not reading God's word. Um, if the priests don't know God, the priests aren't, or if the people don't know God, the priests aren't doing their job. Yeah, um, these priests were hypocrites. So a charge against the nation, 
the nation's being a hypocrite. But he says, like priests, like people, the priests are being hypocrites. This is, yeah, this is, this is bad. Priest, the hypocrisy. When God is an afterthought, I think calling God an afterthought here would be generous. What's less than an afterthought? You've got your thought. Yeah, like an afterthought, like, oh, you're just an afterthought. Yeah, you don't really matter. I don't think God even barely matters. It's like the priest were collecting a paycheck and that's it. It really convicts people who are just rolling with the punches or rather just um, mailing it in and not really caring about life and just kind of doing whatever. Um, I've had a season where I was tempted to do that. It was kind of hard as a small church pastor I was, there was just a lot going on that it, a lot just kind of fell on my shoulders. It was, it was hard to mail it in, but it was easy to just get too busy. And all of a sudden that nothing, certain things don't get done or whatnot. You're doing other things. Yeah. All of our lives are so busy that certain things we should be doing, we're not doing. And we're not doing it like these priests are doing it. These priests seem like they're poking God in the eye. And then saying they're priests. Yeah, there's, some, there's something malicious here. This is, this is akin to saying, well, I'm God's person and God loves me no matter what. I don't know if we can say that. No matter what I do, God's always just going to love me the same. I don't know. That's something I personally struggle with in my theology. Does God have any conditions on love? Is God always going to love the same people the same way? The person he's not going to save and the person he has saved? I just don't know. That's something I wrestle with theologically. But I don't want to be presumptuous of God. I know my past. I know the way I've lived my life. I know how I have been like these priests and how I have poked God in the eye. I know my own stinking stupid hypocrisy. I know how my life has unfolded and the temptation I have to always still be that hypocrite. And you have to fight that temptation. You got to resist that temptation. You have to stay on target and you have to keep repenting and keep on. You, that's the way you've got to live your life. Diligence, faithfulness, because otherwise the hypocrite comes back. The hypocrite is always there knocking. It's like what God told the Cain. That desire is right there at your heart. It wants to come in. It wants to master you. The very first biblical counseling in the Bible with Cain. Is that Genesis 4? He's literally having a counseling session with Cain. Saying sin wants to be your master. It's like hello McFly moment right there. When God is an afterthought, if that doesn't kick you in the rear right now, kick yourself in the rear. God cannot be an afterthought. We cannot be like these priests. We cannot be like this nation. Make texting. God has given us enough to trust both his love and his goodness in our lives. From what I don't understand, I'll trust in that love and in his goodness. Amen. A charge against the people, 10 to 14. The nation's going to get it. The priests and now the people, 10 to 14. Wrong page. Here we go. They will eat but not have enough. Oof. They will engage in prostitution but not flourish because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. They've deserted the Lord 
to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. My people consult a wooden idol. You hear that, Gideon? You and your golden ephod? You were, you were part of that. A wooden idol. A diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. Oh, snap. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. Man, Hosea is bringing it. This is, this is, this is some prophecy right here. My goodness. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak and poplar and terebinth where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. And I like what God says here. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution. Know your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery. Why? This is why on God's books, Eve is not there like Adam is. Oh, Eve sinned. No one's denying that. But it's Adam that's on the books. Because Adam sinned, we now have the sin nature. That's where God goes. Take that, feminist. Look what God says here. Because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice to shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. It's like God saying, I'm not going to punish these women for selling themselves. I'm going to punish the men for creating that system where they want that and they go for that. Now, you can call that God protecting women. I don't know what you want to call that. I'm just taking it at face value. God just said he's condemning the prostitution. He's saying, you know what? I'm not going to go after the women. I'm going to go after these stinking men. If I was a woman, I'd feel a little bit good about that. As if, you know what? God has my back. Just saying. Who knows what position these women are in? I'm not letting them off the hook. I'm just saying who knows what they have, feel like they have to do or what. I have no idea what they're going through. And our stories don't define truth. They just illustrate it. But what I do know is God saying, I ain't going to punish you. I'm going to punish those bozos. And bozo is a nice way to put it. Society influenced worship in this text. What was important to society bled into the church. Gluttony, materialism, sexual promiscuity, alcohol addiction, and idolatry. Any which way you cut it is bad. Thank you, Mick. Society influenced worship. That's backwards. As Christians, I mean, why are the Beatitudes? Why is the Sermon on the Mount maybe the greatest collection of words ever? Because our faith changes society, and it does so through us living it. When society affects our worship, when society defines the church, defines, you can't call it the church here, but just the gatherings and, the, and how they worship and what they worship, um, ouch. In fact, it goes one step further. Society didn't just influence the worship. Society was 
worshipped. This leads only to ruin. That's the spirit of prostitution. The spirit of prostitution says that, God, you're not enough. I need something more. It says your word is not enough. So I need something outside the Bible. And that's very dangerous. God, it also says what you provided for me, God, is not enough. I need more. I need something else. I'm not satisfied with what you've given me or with you, the giver of those things. I need to go outside of that. In the spirit of prostitution, it says, I am the standard. It says, my will be done, not thy will be done. It uses the excuse of temptation. The spirit of prostitution used as an excuse. Well, I was tempted. Eve's like, well, I was deceived. Really? You're going to stand, you're going to stand up to that? When you worship your desire, you can all, you, you do it that way. I know. I, 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 that's the hypocritical season of my life. I worship that desire. And it led me astray. It conceived death in me, like James says. A charge against the people, their society influenced their worship, and society itself was worship. It only leads to ruin the spirit of prostitution. You need to take upon that to yourself. You need to spend some time with that tonight. What about you as Gomer? We've asked this in, in the earlier weeks. What about you has the spirit of prostitution? This is the whole reason Hosea had to go buy Gomer back. She just wasn't the spirit of prostitution. She was the prostitute. A spirit of prostitution. What, 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 is, what does it say here? A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. It behooves you reading this text, listening to me read this text, what about that is your story? Now, I hope zero of that is your story. But if, you know, if, if wishes are, if, if, what is it again? If ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas or something like that, wishes or buts. I hope zero of that. I hope that none of you is any part of the spirit of prostitution, but I know me and I know probably that's your story too, to some degree. You need to spend some time with that. What about me is the harlot? What about you? It has that spirit of prostitution about you that says to God, you're not enough. So that you go outside of the things of God. You got you to gotta check into that. Because if God's going to indict the people, don't you think he's got you, the same God who pays attention? It's terrifying, but that's why it's terrifying. We can't let ourselves off the hook. And we can't say I'm God's people. What did John the Baptist say about that? You call yourself God's people. Well, God can just raise people out of the dirt, out of the rocks. That ax is right there, ready to cut. It was a put up or shut up moment. And it's like, yeah, we, it's like, well, I claim Christ. So I can live any way I want? Seriously? No, no, that's dangerous territory. Behold, I never knew you kind of territory. Careful. Concluding warnings 15 and 19. This is not a fun text. But it's a text that might get you to, to dig deep into the crawl space of your heart. Very important. It's good to do that every once in a while. 15 or 19. Let me scroll the screen down here just a little bit. Though you, Israel, commit adultery, 
Do not let Judah become guilty. And then he starts speaking to Judah. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to Beth Aven. Beth Aven, I believe, he, he, God's making a, I think, don't go to Bethel is what he's trying to say. But instead, he uses a pun. I believe Beth Aven means like house, you know, Beth means house. But Aven, I believe, is house of wickedness or house of evil or something like that. I got to check my notes here. But it's like, remember Bethel, house of the Lord? Don't go to Bethel. And he's calling Bethel because they're worshiping every other thing but God at Bethel. Don't go to Beth evil. Don't go to, don't go to house of wickedness. Don't go there. Do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. The Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. I guarantee you, every single lady in this Zoom, the last thing you want to be called is a cow. Okay? That, that would be like the ultimate of insult for you if somebody called you a cow. That's what God's doing here. A stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in the meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Judah, leave them alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. It's like God saying, yeah, 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 they're getting themselves drunk, and people do stupid things where they're drunk. But even when their, their drinks are all gone, they're still doing it. That tells you that's what they really want to do. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. Ouch. That, by the way, speaks to any political time and any political system. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. Ouch. A whirlwind will sweep them away. And if God's talking about the Assyrians here, that will indeed be the case. And their sacrifices will bring them shame. Mic drop. Ouch. Concluding warnings, Judah, don't join your hopeless brothers. Zero hope. Yes, I know. Last week, God said some sweet words that there is a hope for them, that one day there's going to be this hope. But that's going to be when the Messiah comes. That's in the future. Right now, there's not much hope at all for those 10 northern tribes. Yeah, there'll be a stumbling block. Verse 15, Mick says, don't let Judah become guilty. Don't let Judah become guilty. Don't lead your brothers astray. You're already toast. We get just a little semblance of that in that odd parable Jesus told the rich man of Lazarus. Remember at the very end of that? He's wanting a little bit of drop of water on his tongue. What does he say at the end? Go to my brothers. Let Lazarus go to my brothers or something like that. Let, let them know. Let them know. You got to give that rich man one thing. He's in hell. You got to give him one thing. He didn't want to be a stumbling block to his brothers. He didn't want his brothers to come there. That's the pop culture hell. It's one great party. Everyone show up and we'll, we'll have drinks. That's malarkey. You got to give the rich man one thing there. He did not want his brothers to come. Mm. Judah, don't join your hopeless brothers. Maybe Judah was wanting to reach out to them because they just lost the war. 
Israel just lost the war and they're going to be toast. Maybe Judah's heart's breaking and they're like, this is my family. It's all I've got. And God's going to punish them. We've got to reach out to them. One last chance. We've got to do something for them. And God's saying, no, stay away. How harmful must that have been for Judah? To hear the words, there's consequences coming internal and external. The externals are going to be swept away. The internal is you're going to worship God and all you're going to get is shame. Shame sucks. You worship God to hopefully process through that and not have shame. We turn to Jesus on the cross who bore our shame so that shame doesn't have to be our stories anymore. But you're so far gone, your worship is only going to make more shame. That's hypocrisy. God longs for sheep he can shepherd. God's not looking for to, to shepherd a bunch of heifers, a bunch of cows. A shepherd wants sheep. Stupid, malleable sheep that aren't full of themselves, that want to learn. God longs for sheep he can shepherd. Is that you? We have to ask. That's what God wants. The Israelites are stubborn like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? He can't because they're not lambs in a meadow. God longs for sheep, he can shepherd. You cannot say the Lord is my shepherd unless you also say you're a sheep. You can't. Even if you're the greatest guy in Israel's history, David, that David, he was a sheep. For as a man of a glorious man as David to write Psalm 23, he saw himself as a lowly little sheep, not a proud bull or heifer. Stay humble. When you're humble, it's hard to be a hypocrite because you're not full of yourself anymore. Nick says, you can't play with sin. Or Sandy texts in, without God there to guide us, we will surely lose our way. We need the shepherd's rod and staff to prod and direct us. Lover's my shepherd. Yes, they comfort me. The rod and your staff. Nick says, you can't play with sin. There comes a point where there is no turning back. We know what God's desire is. We see it in, in chapter three. God plays the long game. Okay. Jesus will be on this earth later on later on than Hosea, and Israel still has a hope in a future because of God. But just like that, that, that generation of Ninevites 
turned in the time of Jonah. And then the very next generation, there were crispy critters when the Babylonians came through and knocked their block off. We got the upper 10 tribes are going to be gone very soon. Fighting hypocrisy, stop wearing the mask. I came up with an acronym, M-A-S-K. Hypocrite, the Greek hypocritos means actor. And actors held up a mask, a big giant mask. And that's that, that whatever character they were. So here I am, I'll pull up a little princess thing here. It's on the, my table. Now I'm going to be a little princess. And then uh, I don't know, I have another one I could pull up here. Um, yeah, I do. My goodness. Now I am a pirate. And so I've just got various masks around me here. I don't know why I didn't plan on that. But that's how they would do it. They would wear a mask and they could be that character on stage. My kids have toys. I'm in the toy room. So I, and I'm almost noticed I have ample Legos and random masks. How about that? So you'd wear the mask. You'd be that character. Where everyone understood you're playing the game. And don't wear the mask in your life. M-A-S-K. You fight hypocrisy with your mind. It begins with your self-talk. You can control how you think. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of discipline. You can change your self-talk, your inner narrative. You see a lot of words that start with I, a lot of sentences that start with they. You know, I'm just a lazy bum or they just don't ever like me. You're going to get yourself in this depression. You just keep feeding that. Instead of saying a lot of sentences that start with God, like, you know, God loves me. God expects me to be faithful. God still has a plan for me. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God, you can be saying certain things in your self-talk that can change your inner narrative. You can begin to affect your thoughts. You can fight this hypocrisy the way you're stinking thinking. Fight this hypocrisy with your mind. A, you fight it with your attitude. Your attitude starts with humility. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Yes, humble yourself. That is the next move. It's hard to remain a hypocrite if you are humble, genuinely humble. It's what like Rick Warren once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. People attribute that to C.S. Lewis. It's actually not C.S. Lewis. It goes back to Rick Warren, I believe, purpose-driven life guy. But yes, thinking of yourself less. Like, okay, enough of me. People who really struggle with humility, serve. Get out there and do things and serve people and get over yourself. The answer to self-love is not self-hatred. It's just getting over yourself, denying yourself. The S. Speech. What is it about you? You fight it with your mind. You're probably your selfishness. That's probably what I meant with S. I forgot what the S is real quick. If you're selfish, you're a hypocrite or you're in, in line to be a hypocrite. You gotta fight this denial of the self is huge. You can say your speech, you wanna have a nice tidy S word there, that's fine. Out of your mouth is what's in your heart. Jesus said, paraphrase me. Yeah, I forget what the K was. Acknowledging God, how do you fight hypocrisy? Like your actions maybe, I don't know. I forgot, I got myself off track. It's not that important right now. The MA and the S are enough. <laughs> come up with a good K word for me. I forgot what it was. I should have written it down. I thought I'd remember it, but you know what? Um, yeah, life happened, but knowledge of his word. Thanks, Sandy. We'll just do that. How do you, but it's gotta be more than knowledge. You gotta act now. You gotta acknowledge God, but you have to live differently. You can't just do general knowledge of God. So I like that saying, but there's gotta be more there. What is it about you that needs to stop being you? There's things about you that need to start and things about you that need to start. Otherwise, you're going to fall into these traps. I know because I have been in those traps and only by God's grace am I out. Only by God's grace am I here now. God has a plan for you. 
God does indeed care for you. God is using your story for his glory. God is bringing you through this season to hear something like this for a purpose and a reason. Hosea 4 is depressing. It's hard. You read this and go, gosh, thanks, God. Yes, Mick, this text is a great wake-up call to continuously take inventory. Am I being wooed from God? We need to be sensitive to his spirit and be vigilant. Yeah, the bat, I have like two or three conversations going on in the back of my mind, trying to remember what I wrote down, what I put for that K. But uh, your, your mind, your attitude, uh, you're, you're going against selfishness and, I don't know, kinetic something. I, I, it doesn't matter. It, 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 you know what? Come up with a good K. That's your homework assignment. Do, give a good K. It could be knowledge. could be, you know, something fun. Uh, yeah. Those of you listening to me in podcast land, you know what? I make mistakes too. That's why you love me because I'm not perfect. I'm not the hero of my own stories and I make boneheaded moves like that. I forgot my K. How would that play on Sunday morning? Well, I'd have to, I'd have to remember it by the next service, wouldn't I? M-A-S-K. Wow. Stop wearing the mask. It's really tempting to wear a mask. It's very comforting to hide behind that mask. That cannot be you anymore. Otherwise, we run the temptation of being like those priests of being like the people of the nation. It's our chapter today. This has been Big Rev from Hosea chapter four. Probably once I sign off, I'll remember what the K is. Thanks for letting me share.